Hello to all you travelers out there on the road to evidence-based literacy instruction. I'm Kate Wynn, classroom teacher and host of IDA Ontario's new podcast, Reading Road Trip. Welcome to the show. This is episode four of our very first season. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast from the traditional land of the Mississauga Anishinaabe. We are grateful to live here and thank the generations of First Nations people for their care for and teachings about the earth. We also recognize the contributions of Métis, Inuit, and other Indigenous peoples in shaping our community and country. Along with this acknowledgement and in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, we'd like to amplify the work of an Indigenous artist. And this week we are sharing Dancing with Our Ancestors by Sarah Florence Davidson and Robert Davidson, illustrated by Janine Gibbons. In this book, you can learn about the cultural significance of the Haida potlatch through the sights, sounds, and dances of this once banned ceremony. And now, on with the show. I am absolutely thrilled to introduce our guest this week. She is a classroom teacher in Utah and author of the fabulous, hot-off-the-press new book, Seven Mighty Moves, Research-Backed Classroom-Tested Strategies to Ensure K-3 Reading Success. And she's someone I now also call a friend. So glad to have her with us today. Hello, Lindsay Kemeny. Hi, I'm so excited to be here, Kate. Well, thank you for joining us. So, Lindsay, usually with the guests, I kind of just jump right into practical suggestions and getting at all of that stuff that our listeners want to hear. But in your case, your professional background and your personal background and the way that they kind of weave together is pretty relevant. So could you just give us uh, a bit of the history there? Absolutely. So I started teaching and I was heavily trained in balanced literacy originally. So I taught, you know, second grade for about five years uh, using balanced literacy. And I just, I was really adamant that it was the best way to teach reading. And then I took a little break because I have four children and I stayed home with them for a little while. And then when I returned to the classroom, a couple different things happened the same year. It was my first year teaching kindergarten. And naturally in kindergarten, you spend a lot of time teaching the letter names and sounds. And I was so excited to bring my students back to our small group table and say, okay, now I'm going to show you how you can use those sounds to read words. But the books that were provided to me were these predictable, repetitive texts um, filled with words that had, you know, phonic skills that I had not taught because they were more advanced. And so I found myself having to say, oh, oh, wait, um, you can't sound this one out. Look at the picture. Does it give you a clue? Now, I had always done that before when I taught second grade, but uh, it really, it was when I was teaching kindergarten that it really started to hit me like this, wait, I'm giving these students the wrong idea of what reading is. And I started to grow a little bit uneasy with some of the ways I had been taught. And then that same year, my son was in second grade at the time, and we had known for a while that he was struggling and I, uh, to learn to read. And I couldn't figure out why. He struggled learning his letter names and sounds. He struggled with phonemic awareness, everything. Uh, and that year, he was diagnosed with dyslexia. So and, and not just dyslexia, but very severe dyslexia. So that really is what started me into this deep dive of literacy instruction because I began to search what do 
students with dyslexia need to learn to read, which led to what does everyone need to learn to read? What does the brain do when we read? And it just started me on this path. And I, I just feel like I was this starved animal. I couldn't get enough. I wanted more and more information. And I began to apply everything I was learning both with my son and in my classroom. And that's really where I was seeing, you know, huge, huge positive gains and results. And I just, I became really upset, I guess, at some of the ways I had been taught because they, there was no research behind them. And it just, oh, it just, it just changed everything. And my, my son also had depression. So, and it was all related to, you know, reading and, and I just learned self-esteem and reading are so tightly connected. And so, um, you know, as his reading improved, his self-esteem improved too. So it just, it has lit this fire under me because I just wanted to help everyone. Yeah. And wouldn't you say what I'm noticing in, you know, this community that we're a part of, you know, all these people who are all for evidence-based literacy instruction, it seems like the ones who have children with dyslexia, children who struggled, they tend to be the earlier adopters because they figured out faster that it wasn't working because they could see it in their own home and they knew that they were doing all of the other right things, right? And that that something just yeah. wasn't working. Like I, I am so regretful. I mean, I'm lucky that my daughters were in that group of kids that learned to read more easily, but I wish I had known earlier for the sake of my students, right? Like yes. what I missed because I just thought, oh, well, this is how all kids learn to read. You just put some leveled books in front of them and they'll memorize them and then something's going to yeah. click. And yeah. that is not how kids learn to read, right? So so that's yeah. a shame. So you have been just doing your thing, this rock star primary teacher. I know you've been in <laughs> kindergarten and first and second. Um, and then now you're this book author. So how all of a sudden did that happen? Please tell us. Um, yeah, this, you know, I never would have have imagined that I would write a book. I actually, I, I actually had in the back of my mind, gosh, I would love to write a book just because I'm, I'm so passionate. I've seen the difference in my, in my son and in my students. And I, it's, it's hard to talk about, but some of the things my son went through, I'm just like, if I can prevent one student from feeling that way or, or saying that, or, uh, you know, it's all worth it. So I had started a blog and because I was really passionate about sharing this stuff, I want all students to be able to learn how to read. I want all teachers to understand what to do to learn to read and to just improve their instruction. So I started a blog and just kind of sharing some of the things as I was learning them. And I don't know how, but several people from Scholastic saw my blog and had read through it. And they reached out to me about a year ago. It was May. And if you're a teacher, you know that May is a very crazy month. <laughs> so I get this email from the editorial director at Scholastic that says, would you be interested in, in writing a book? And I'm just kind of thinking, is this for real? And it's May. Like, please don't ask me to do anything right now because, you know, it's like crazy time. And but I was thinking about it and I just thought, oh, yes, I just I want to help more students. I want to help more teachers. And maybe this could help. And it took me a few weeks to respond to the email. <laughs> um, I had to wait till school was out. And it was in June when I'm, I was like, OK, let's let's meet and see what they have to say. And I was just really 
I just had kind of this burning where I was just like, yes, I really want to do this. So they invited me to write a book proposal. And that's a bit of work. <laughs> and you have to have a sample chapter in there. And so I worked on that that summer. And then that sample book chapter had to go through several different levels of the company, kind of like these cuts, right, where yeah. they told me, oh, it could be a no. And then our, our journey is over or, you know, if it's a yes, then it goes to the next group and the next group and the next group. And so while I was waiting for them to evaluate and kind of um, see what happens there, I just, it was the summer, right? So I'm like, I'm just going to keep writing. I'm going to write this book. And then if they pass, I'll just, I'll find someone else, maybe another publisher. Well, it was the end of October um, when we got the yes. And so then we just, started writing, uh, or I guess I had written, but I started revising. So I kind of would revise each chapter, give them to my editor, he would get back to me and um, is really exciting to see how the process, you know, worked. And then in December, I started reaching out to some uh, experts that I know to read my draft chapters, because I was just like, I want everything to be really accurate. So let me know, you know, if there's anything wrong or if I need to fix anything or what your opinions are. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it yeah. happens. Well, and I'm going to just uh, add to what you just said about your um, chapter readers. I mean, we're talking about people like Matt Burns and Nancy Hennessy <laughs> and Stephanie Stoller. Like, this isn't just the person next door. Like, you have some great names who have looked over your work, which is amazing. Now, it's funny because, I mean, I said off the top that I consider you a friend now. We've done a lot of emailing yes. and texting and and um, tweeting and that sort of thing. But this is our first actual voice-to-voice. -voice. We can see each other. The listeners don't know that, but we can see each other right now as we're talking to. But when you first told me about the book, I remember sending you you that gif from Friends where Monica and Chandler have just gotten engaged and Rachel and Phoebe are talking and the quote is, I'm probably 98% happy for you and 2% jealous. <laughs> and I remember yeah. sending that to you because like, let's just be honest here. Like that's, you know, so incredible for you. I was really excited. Now I do want listeners to know though that I was involved in this book in a couple of really important ways. So if you could share that, that would be great. Um, well, it's so fun, Kate. I consider you my soul sister. <laughs> and this is... Um, yeah, it's the first time we've actually spoken, but we, as you said, we've emailed back and forth. We've texted back and forth before we realized that we were being charged like international, international rates. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, when I was coming up, when I was trying to come up with the title of the book and I was going back and forth um, with the publisher and I was just like, I need, <clears throat> I'm really indecisive. And I'm like, I need another person's opinion on some of this stuff. And so I would email you and you were so nice and gracious and would give you give me your input. And that was so fun. And I think some of it, you know, but I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's always the title and then there's the subtitle and then mixing and matching titles and subtitles. Yes. And then, of course, the publisher is, you know, the one putting their money behind this and, yeah. and they really get a say, right? So, uh -huh. but I, I think maybe little pieces of what I liked ended up somewhere in there, which is good. <laughs> and I also was so honored to be asked to write an endorsement for the yes. book. And I just want to read to everyone the endorsement that I wrote because I mean every word of it. So here is what I gave to Scholastic. This book is pure gold. In what feels like a conversation with your most knowledgeable teacher friend, Lindsay Kemeny expertly weaves together reading research and practical suggestions for the classroom. Seven mighty moves should be required reading for teaching early literacy. 
And I really do mean that. And when I say required reading, like I'm already, you know, so my friend Kim Lockhart and I, we do PD together sometimes. We're working with a group in another province next year. And we've already said, how about you buy Mighty, some Mighty Moves for everybody? And then we'll kind of do like book study and, you know, to pull apart the chapters and things like that. So, I mean, I am uh, I am promoting it and working oh. with and teachers with this one because it's just, I really mean what I said. You are the real deal in the classroom, right? You've got that frontline experience. You've got the parenting experience piece as well, but you bring in all the research. So, I mean, things that I love about the book, you've got so much meat in there for teachers. I mean, no offense to the vegans and the vegetarians, but you know what I mean? Like the definitions and the charts and the examples, classroom anecdotes, routines, there are QR codes to resources, all of that stuff, right? Like, and I love the way too, like you kind of name drop some researchers and things like that, but without making it sound like it's an academic um, article. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's really reader friendly. So I love it. We're only going to be able to scratch the surface of what's in it today. So listeners, definitely you all need to go get your own copy of Seven Mighty Moves, but we are just going to give you a sneak peek at an example of what might fit in to those different moves. So and before we jump in, Kate, can I just say thank you so much? I just, your endorsement meant so much to me. And you're one of the first people I thought of when, you know, Scholastic said, do you have suggestions for people that could give an endorsement? And I just thought, you know, I would love, I mean, Kate, you're the perfect person because you're my audience and you're a teacher and I knew you would get it. You know, it's not like you said, it's a little more informal. So sometimes I had people reviewing it that were like, oh, you know, you have some contractions in here or you're, t you're talking in the first person. And I'm like, like yes, yep. this is not a research article. It's very like, teacher to teacher, right? Like yes. you're just, and so anyways, I, I loved your endorsement because I felt like you really got that. Yeah. And I know after I read every chapter, I mean, again, the texting before we realized the international charges, <laughs> that was such a brilliant idea, but back to the Twitter messaging where I was like, okay, here's what I loved in this chapter and, and so on. Okay. <laughs> let's start with move one, teach phonemic awareness with intention. Can you just kind of give us a little peek at maybe how you shifted? Because when we say moves, it kind of implies going from one place to someplace else, right? So what's a yes. little way that you changed in terms of teaching phonemic awareness with intention? Well, what's interesting is with phonemic awareness, I had to move several times. Um, initially, it was just even knowing phonemic awareness was a thing, to be honest. I had just not been, you know, trained on this and really had been taught anything about phonemic awareness. So when I was teaching second grade, I never really realized that, oh my goodness, a lot of my students struggle with this area and I need to explicitly teach phonemic awareness, not just phonics, right? And then it was shifting again to learning that, you know, we don't need to spend all this time with the larger units that we want to focus on getting to the phoneme level as quickly as possible. And in addition to that, we can connect our phonemic awareness with letters and show them how that matches. So that was, you know, a, a couple shifts, I guess, that I made mm -hmm. within phonemic awareness. Yeah. And I know like even as the research keeps evolving and we're learning more like, you know, like a little bit of oral only might be okay. But I mean, like we're talking a few minutes max and those great points that you just mentioned, like connecting to letters, those 
phoneme units, right, instead of the bigger unit, all of that stuff. And and you've got some great tips. So I mean, your book, as I mentioned, it's not just like, here's the research, so go figure out what to do in your class. It's, okay, here's a bit of the research, and here's what I do. You mentioned in that chapter the idea of a sound spelling wall. Some people call them sound, sound walls at mm-hmm. this point, but some people are saying sound spelling walls, which I do like. I find in my class the kids use them for writing just as much as they do for anything else. What's kind of a best practice? I mean, you have you used sound walls in K1 and 2? Yes, I use them in all. And and I like calling them sound spelling walls to really focus on, uh, you know, the point of it is connecting the phoneme and the grapheme, right? And so I like using them. I do point out that there is not research specifically on using a sound spelling wall, but there is that there is research about, uh, you know, bringing students awareness to those articulatory gestures. And so for me, with the sound spelling wall, it's not the the magic is not in the wall. It's in the instruction. And so, you know, the first year I put up, I'm trying to think, I I think I've used a, a sound spelling wall for four years. And the first year I put it up, it was kind of just for me. And it really brought a lot of clarity. Okay, here's all the phonemes and I'm teaching them the different graphemes that represent those phonemes. And, um, and it, so it, I, I, it just really helped me kind of make that connection, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I love just being able to do a quick, if I'm teaching a, pho- a new phoneme, let's say, you know, our phonics lesson is going to be the SH digraph. Shh. Well, I can start my instruction by, okay, let's say the sound. Shh. Look, what's our mouth doing? What are our, what's our teeth doing? And it doesn't need to be super long. We don't need to go crazy with it and spend 15 minutes on just a sound spelling wall. But I can draw that awareness to them. Um, we can look and find the mouth picture that matches on the wall, and we can find the grapheme that represents that sound. So yeah. And I love how you mentioned too, like there's no actual, you know, research on here's the best way to do, use a sound spelling wall or, you know, that sort of thing. It's just that we know, like you mentioned, the articulatory gestures and of course the linking of the graphemes to the phonemes. So whatever tools we're using, and like you said too, in terms of teacher knowledge and improving our own instruction, if it's helping, then that's great. Um, so I, I posted something on Twitter a few weeks ago because sometimes in Facebook groups, sometimes they drive me crazy. And, you know, the whole idea of like, there is one right way to do this sound wall and here's how you must do it. And until there's actual research to to argue that point, I think we have to allow a a little bit of flexibility there. But I know I I love mine in kindergarten and we use it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, move number two, teach phonics explicitly and systematically. So we had Dr. Holly Lane on the show last week and she was talking, she kind of delved into like definitions of explicit and systematic and all of that. And, you know, listeners are, are welcome to go back and listen to that kind of delving into the, the ins and outs of phonics for, um, for most of that episode. But what would you say in terms of a practical move that you have made as a classroom teacher in terms of that area? Ooh, making sure to follow that I do, we do, you do uh, approach within your lessons and also making sure that you provide enough practice opportunities because sometimes we spend all that time just teaching the new phonics skill and not enough time in application. So making sure you get that application. And, you know, I always thought I taught phonics before, which which I did, but I didn't follow a scope and sequence. It wasn't explicit. It wasn't systematic. You know, I would teach a concept as it came up in a book 
that we were reading. So it's so different now because now I say, oh, nope, we are going to start. Here's my scope and sequence of phonics skills throughout the year. And we're going to make sure that, you know, we teach all these things. So many great things I love in that chapter. I mean, I love you talk about how teachers need to learn and understand the code. And I mean, I would have thought I was a strong English student, right? But I mean, I didn't know that there was a rule about when to use C or when to use K until Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know, 43 years old. So there are things that we're learning about the code, which is great. I also love, like you talk about multi-sensory, like the whole idea of the research piece, because there are some um, structured literacy approaches that use, you know, multi-sensory in there, but we haven't isolated that it's the multi-sensory part that's most effective, but we have no reason to think that it's not helping, right? And you just talk about how it might even be a motivational component and that sort of thing. So I love how, you know, anybody reading this, it's like they're getting a little bit of the background, the research, the education on those pieces too. A mm-hmm. um, couple things I wanted to ask you about from the chapter. So you said let go of letter of the week. And so what did you mean by that? I mean, uh, well, I think if it's you obvious, think about it, why? yeah, if you only teach a letter of uh, uh, one letter a week, I mean, it's going to take those students all the way until what? February, March, uh, before they get through the whole alphabet. And, you know, for, for kindergarten, that's just way that's that's way too slow. And so I love doing letter a day and then doing cycles where you're going to do a letter a day and then you're going to start it again. And when I taught kindergarten, you know, most of the students by December knew their letter names and sounds, right? And so um, it's just, yeah, if we go too slow, it's it's going to, it's, they're not going to get into reading quick enough. No. And that's, that was definitely a mistake I was making for my first few years in kindergarten. It was actually my prep teacher who would come in the class. She was using Jolly Phonics, which is known to be a fairly effective program. So that yes. part was okay. But it was just, here's your letter of the week. I didn't even pay attention to what letter of the week she was doing, nor was I incorporating that into the writing or anything else we were doing in the class. I wasn't ensuring that there was sort of that review, that repetition, nothing like that. So I could say, oh yeah, we did phonics, but it wasn't the way we should have been doing it, right? So that's important. And even some people think like, okay, well, I've got a lot of at-risk learners in the class or maybe a multilingual learners. And so maybe we better slow down for them. But the research actually shows, no, they need the quick pace with the review just as much. So that's, uh, that's definitely important. And the other thing I wondered if you might just describe quickly is your show what you know kind of dictation idea. Because we're not doing the old school random words, memorize them, regurgitate them. That's not what we're looking for. How do you do that in your class? So show what you know is basically my spelling assessment. And instead of calling it a test, I call it show what you know, because that's what the students are going to do on Fridays is they're going to show me what they know. And I'm going to take, you know, the phonics skill that I have explicitly taught them and the, and I'm not going to tell them the exact words that are going to be on this uh, show what you know at the end of the week. I'm just going to give them the words at the end of the week to see who knows that concept and who needs more help. And I'm not putting this on parents because a lot of times that's what I have seen. I've seen a, a list of words that go home and the teacher doesn't do anything to teach them and it's their parents' responsibility. And I've experienced this as a parent myself. And then if they don't know them on Friday, well, then it must be the parents' fault. (laughs) And we need to do the heavy lifting. Like, so I'm just giving them words with phonic skills in them that I have explicitly taught. And then I'm going to make a note of 
who, you know, who was missing those digraphs. So this student, we need to work on CH with this. Maybe there's a group of students and Mm -hmm. I know the next week that I'm going to be working with them on that. If the majority of the students, you know, really struggled, then I know, ooh, okay, I got to focus. I got to, you know, redo this in my classroom, whole group. So it gives me a lot of information. And so uh, I love it because it's just much more responsive and, you know, helps inform my instruction. And so efficient because it's done whole class. It just takes a few minutes. I mean, obviously the marking time on on the other end, but like you get so much information from it to help you, as you said, to move forward. So Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think those things are are great. Move number three, we are talking about teach decoding strategies, not cueing strategies. Yes. (laughs) So if you're unfamiliar with three cueing, that is the idea that students use multiple cues to figure out a word. And there's actually no research behind this. This was really hard for me to learn, uh, to realize, because I felt angry, I felt guilty, I felt sad, um, I felt offended, (laughs) all the different things. And this is, you know, that idea you know, I, I talk about those beanie baby strategies because that's how I see it being applied a lot of times. Oh, oh, skip over the word, read the sentence, and then figure out the the word. Uh, look at the picture, does it be, and the first letter of the word, and does that help you? You know, help give you a clue. And really, these are strategies that poor readers use, not good readers. And the research tells us that good readers can read words in isolation. They don't need context. They don't need pictures to figure out the words. So when we teach students to read words using cues like this. We're literally teaching them to read like a poor reader. And so that this was probably the biggest move to make was abandoning three cueing. And three cueing, you know, takes students' eyes off the word. And we want their their eyes to stay on the word and match the sounds they hear with the letters they see. Yeah. And this is one for me, the same thing. And for a while after I learned about issues with re-queuing and trying to move forward for a while, like my face would actually get hot, like with kind of that embarrassment, whatever feeling when I would remember things I had done, like sending home letters to parents with those level books, which, you know, we're going to talk about. But, um, you know, like, and you know, if your child has trouble with the word, just tell them, use their eagle eye and look at the picture and what do they think? And it's like, I can't believe I'm past the point now. I don't feel uh, hot in the face anymore when I think about it, but I was was definitely doing that. And I think I'm hearing some people kind of push back, like, we were never told to make children guess. I don't know that anyone with authority ever said to me, Kate, have your children guess when they're reading. However, with the material, and again, we'll get to that in a moment, if that's the only option they had because they can't decode, then of course that's going to be what you go to, right? Well, use the picture yeah. or just use the first letter or use the context, try to just, just take a guess because they couldn't do anything else. They didn't have those those decoding strategies. Um, but I do want to well, tell you, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Well, just along those lines, I get really frustrated because I do hear more and more you know, people putting it on us. I feel like they're gaslighting teachers and saying, oh, well, the teachers are using it wrong. You're just supposed to analyze the three cues and and then what? I, I don't even understand what they're trying to say. But, um, you know, I had, you know, a, purchased something or something with their curriculum and literally had the game in there. Guess the covered word. That's what it was yeah. called. It was with a poster. It had these yes, steps had for the for 
<laughs> for the whole process of putting a post-it note, then you would unveil the, the first letter and then you'd unveil the whole thing. And so I'm just like, you guys can't put this on us. We were literally trained yeah. <laughs> to have them guess. Yeah, that that's that's what they had to do. Um, we had Lynn Stone on the show actually for our uh-huh. first episode. And then when we were done recording, she just kind of asked me who else is going to be on. And when I said your name, she got so excited because Decoding Dragon is yes. in this chapter of the book. So instead like yes. moving away from Eagle Eye and all of those um, uh-huh. non-evidence-based, Lynn has a nice little graphic with some better better prompts she that does. actually promote decoding. The- so. Yes. And she was so nice um, to let me use that in, in the book. And you know, so in each in each chapter, there's, you know, a list of just kind of things to do. So in this one, there's, I have, you know, several different things to do, uh, you know, decoding strategies, basically, instead of the three queuing strategies. Yeah, perfect. On now to move number four, use decodable texts instead of predictable texts with beginning readers. So tell me kind of about that shift for you. Yes. So as I mentioned before, these, you know, these predictable texts are the ones, you know, they're written specifically for this purpose to use the three queuing system, which we were just talking about. The only way for students to read them is either to memorize the pattern or to look at the pictures. It's usually a combination of both. It's like, we cleaned up the garage, we cleaned up the kitchen, you know. And so that is huge. Because even if you say, okay, I'm not going to use three queuing anymore. Thank you very much. But then if you give students these predictable, repetitive texts, these are our most fragile readers, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to have to rely on the pictures and the context in order to read that. So we need to give these beginning readers decodable text so that they can put uh, those phonic skills you're teaching them to practice. And like I was saying before, they need a lot of practice. They need a lot of application. And decodables help them do that. And the assessment piece of that as well, right? That's what we're giving them for practice, but we also should be assessing them based on what we've taught them and what they've been practicing with. Like I'm thinking of PM benchmarks or the FMP VAS, like those things. Kids can't get a level one or a level A without using a guessing strategy. Mm-hmm. They're not able to get those levels by fully decoding. And so it's just not even fair, right? It's just setting them up for failure or setting them up to use those strategies of poor readers. So, um, yeah. so really important. I'm going to move now to move number five, embrace a better approach to teaching sight words. Now, do you want to define how scientists, what scientists mean by sight words and then what you're talking about? Yeah, it's different because, um, you know, researchers use sight words as any word that the student knows instantly, not that they have memorized it, but that they have connected the sounds they hear with the spellings they see and with the meaning of the word. So when they have orthographically mapped uh, that word, then, and and any word can become a sight word because any word that we orthographically map and we can recognize automatically, that has become a sight word. Uh, in teachers, we generally use this word as the list uh, as to describe the list of words, like maybe on the fry list, um, high frequency words that quote unquote cannot be sounded out. And and this is really common to think, oh, these are words that cannot be sounded out, uh, which is not exactly true, right? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's a limit to how many words we can memorize visually. So, you know, it's, we want students connect the sounds and the spellings. We don't want them to look at the words as a whole. 
Mm-hmm. And I love you talk about the heart word approach in your in your chapter, which is what mm-hmm. I use as well, because we want them to connect whatever sounds and spellings they can. And then just maybe the little pieces that aren't what they expect or that they haven't learned to decode yet, perhaps if we're trying to get a few high frequency words in there like the, so that they can actually start reading some interesting text, um, yeah. but they'll eventually learn uh, learn later. Um, and I do love, like I, I learned something new in that chapter. Like You've got a bit of a more robust routine for introducing heart words than I do. Uh-huh. I follow you fly. And uh-huh. then when we get to um, a certain heart word from there. I, I like to use the really great reading videos if I can, if there is one for that word, but I don't think I work them with it enough. Like I don't have them necessarily write it at the same yeah. time as it's introduced. And so I did oh, get some uh-huh. great ideas from yeah. your from your book just to make it a little more robust in terms of that yes. introducing a heart word routine. And throughout the book, there are QR codes um, that go to different things, and a lot of them go to videos. So you will see that uh, there's a QR code, uh, and you will see me teaching using that process uh, in the video. I think I, I have two different words just to kind of give you two different ideas of how to do that. And it's based on uh, the way that I learned from Nora Chabazi, who is – uh, the founder of the Ebly program um, with, you know, I do it a little differently. So I will put that out there, but I link to the way she does it in, in the book. So great. Move number six is focus on meaningful fluency practice. So how has that been a, a move for you or what does that look like? You know, I think before I kind of thought fluency developed on its own and now I'm just so much intentional so much more intentional about it where we need to provide these meaningful practice opportunities. And a child who struggles with fluency, that's not going to get better if they're just silent reading. They're, they're, uh, it's just going to become inaudible, right? And so lots of practice opportunities. We can think of fluency on the letter level, on the word level, on the phrase level, and on just your connected text. So uh, I describe some different ways to do that here. I describe partner reading paragraph shrinking. I know we've talked about that and we've both presented on that. It's a great intervention for fluency and just some other things. I think I talk about the issues with round robin reading Mm -hmm. uh, and alternatives that you can do to that with that. Yeah, absolutely. And then move number seven, improve comprehension by developing vocabulary and background knowledge. So are you telling me that that structured literacy is not just all about the foundational skills? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Tell me about this move. Yes. um, It's just important not to neglect the other side of Scarborough's reading rope. And comprehension is just, you know, it's just the set of, uh, there's so many things that go into it. And one of the ways that you know, I neglected it before was by, you know, not really considering how important vocabulary is with background knowledge for our comprehension. And in the in the book, I give the example with with my son. Um, my son with dyslexia had this obsession with black holes, and he would watch videos on black holes, and he would read books about black holes, and he studied them, and he drew them, and he was obsessed. And you know, I worked with him every day on his reading. And so he had asked me, you know, can we read a book on black holes for our tutoring sessions? Absolutely. We got one from the library and, you know, we're reading it. He's reading it to me. And I'm just, there's all these words like quasars, event horizon. And I'm like, okay, what is going on? And I'd have to stop him and I have to go back and reread it. And I didn't understand. 
But he understood. He knew all those things. And so it just really showed me how important vocabulary and background knowledge is because I could decode better than him, but he was having better comprehension of that book because he had the content knowledge, he knew the vocabulary, and I didn't. For sure. And I think like when we're comparing balanced literacy to structured literacy, I think one area there might be a little bit of overlap is the rich read aloud idea, right? But before I learned what I know now, I was way more about the fiction and a lot less of like explicit vocabulary work. And now I'm more into like building text sets around a nonfiction area that the kids are interested in. Because I mean, I'm in Ontario in kindergarten. It's a lot of inquiry and we're kind of following student lead and that sort of thing. So we can pick a topic like at the very end of the school year, right before Canada Day. There's never school on Canada Day here because the summer holidays have started, but we just did a three-week little thing on Canada. And so it was like just some nice fiction stories that took place in Canada, but then also those nonfiction pieces, right? And just learning about the province and the territories and all of that stuff. I don't know if you know all that stuff about Canada, Lindsay, but um, so just the idea of building that knowledge really intentionally, right, I think is also that other important key of structured literacy. And as you said, the other side of the rope, because we know that both are so important. Yes, absolutely. That's great. Building text sets is a great way to do that. And I love that you're including both the fiction and the nonfiction on that topic. Yes. All right. So we've come to the end of the seven moves. Is there anything that we haven't talked about or anything that, you, uh, that you're that you just burning to to share with <laughs> listeners before we say goodbye? Oh, um, I don't think so. This has been so fun. I just hope everybody goes and gets their own copy of Lindsay Kemeny's brand new book, Seven Mighty Moves, because it really is as good as I keep uh, I keep saying it is. I do not try to steer people wrong with book recommendations. And, and I mean, some books, it's funny because I'll see on Twitter or Facebook, of course, like, oh, what's a good book for beginning? You know, if you're just starting this journey and somebody will say, oh, go with Speech to Printer, go with um, Seidenberg. (laughs) And it's like, brilliant books, absolutely brilliant. And those are both books that I read way too early in my journey. Like I had to read them again later, right? But I mean, this is a book, I mean, I have read later into my journey and still learned more, but this is a book that somebody brand new where it's like, we have been hardcore balanced literacy, now it's time to move. What do I do? Like, it's just... It's written in such a teacher-friendly way. It's all research-backed. So you can kind of like, because sometimes it's the case of individual teachers trying to make these moves on their own. And it's not like someone's pushing it from top down. They're the ones trying to go to their principals or go to their leaders and say, I think we need to do this. But your chapters, it's like, well, here's kind of a citation and here's a bit of research on this. So it's not just, oh, this teacher in Utah says we need to do it (laughs) this way, right? It's got got that perfect... um, mix between the teacher practice and then, no, no, this is actual science that that we're basing this on. So in case listeners have not gotten the message yet that, uh, that I think they should get this book, I do think they should. And Lindsay, I'm just so excited that we got a chance to have this voice-to-voice, virtual face-to-face. And uh, congratulations on the new book. I hope it's uh, as successful as it should be. And I hope we get a chance to, to do this again sometime. Me too. And thank you so much. And your words are just, I love them. So thank you. They mean so much to me. Thanks, Lindsay. Show notes for this episode with all the links and information you need can be found at podcast.idaontario.com. And you have been listening to episode four with Lindsay Kemeny. Now it's time for that typical end of the podcast call to action. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Reading Road Trip, we'd love it if you could rate and or review it in your podcast app, as this is extremely helpful for a new podcast. And of course, we welcome any social media love you feel inspired to spread as well. Feel free to tag IDA Ontario and me. My handle is This Mom Loves. Make sure you're following the Reading Road Trip podcast in your app and watch for new episodes dropping every Monday throughout the summer. We could not bring Reading Road Trip to you without the behind-the-scenes support from Caitlin Hanna, Brittany Haynes, and Melinda Jones at IDA Ontario. I'm Kate Wynn, and along with my co-producer Una Malcolm, we hope this episode of Reading Road Trip has made your path to evidence-based literacy instruction just a little bit clearer and a lot more fun. Join us next time for another fantastic guest interview here on Reading Road Trip.